Welcome to the Grattan Institute podcast channel. This is a recording of one of Grattan's public events. Welcome to this evening's event, Building Teacher Expertise in New South Wales Schools. My name is Megan French. I'm the Marketing Manager for the Grattan Institute and host of our podcast. Before we begin proceedings, I would like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the land on which we meet today, the Gadigal people of the Aora Nation. I would like to pay my respects to the Elders past, present and future and pay my respects to all Aboriginal people here today, wherever you may come from. Australia has many pockets of excellence in school education, but not yet a system of excellence. It's time to get serious about improving teaching. Grattan Institute has publicly advocated for dedicated roles for the most expert teachers to lift the quality of teaching practice. So tonight we will discuss what teaching expertise looks like, how access to expert teachers could help every teacher improve their practice, what support expert teachers themselves need and the benefits and risks of embedding expertise into teacher career paths. I'm joined on stage uh, by my illustrious panel. Uh, next to me is Murat Dizdar PSM, the Deputy Secretary of School Operations and Performance. He leads the public education system of over 2,200 New South Wales Department of Education schools and 65,000 teachers that provides a quality public education for 800,000 students. So not many, just a small amount. Soon to be a million, I'm said, I'm told. Uh, and his division is responsible for school planning, ongoing self-assessment and external validation, annual reporting and policy implementation. Murat was awarded the Australia Day Public Service Medal in 2016. And next to Murat is Michelle Tregoning, a primary school teacher with a particular affinity for mathematics and numeracy. She's currently the Numeracy Coordinator for Early Action for Success, a New South Wales department initiative designed to enrich the learning outcomes of disadvantaged students across the state. She's working to build the expertise and pedagogical content knowledge of instructional leaders and teachers who service over 70,000 K-2 children in 570 schools that take part in the Early Action for Success program. Finally, I'm joined by Dr. Peter Goss, uh, my colleague. Peter is the School Education Program Director for the Grattan Institute and is focused on how education systems and data can help schools and teachers adapt and improve their practice. Prior to joining Grattan, he spent more than 10 years as a strategy consultant, most recently with the Boston Consulting Group, and worked with Noel Pearson to improve education outcomes for Cape York primary school students. All right, a final note before we get underway. If you're a Twitter fan, please feel free to have your say on Twitter using the hashtag forwardthinking and the handles at Grattan Inst and at SLNSW. All right, let's get on with the show. Peter, I'm going to start with you. Uh, can you get our discussion going by talking through why teacher expertise and specialisation is so important? Let's take a big picture look at school school education outcomes in Australia, and I would say that there are there are three challenges that we need to ha to address. One is that we need to get better at teaching some of the more traditional subjects, starting with reading, numeracy, writing, but also building on humanities, sciences, languages, etc. Um, and that's about improvement. We know a lot about what works effectively. We don't always implement it. Second would be that. Uh, we also need to learn how to do some different things to uh, prepare young people for a world that is changing. And third, 
we need to reduce the gap between the educational haves and have-nots. Now, what that means is that if we keep doing everything the same, then we're not really going to change. We're not going to change the outcomes. But if we want teachers to do some things differently, whether it's a bit more incremental in terms of areas that are well-known or whether it's a bit more innovative in terms of areas that are less well-known, then we come to the question of on what basis should an educator change their practice? On what basis should we should a, a teacher say, I'm going to do more of this approach, less of that one? And the answer, in my view, should come back to what helps kids learn more? The idea of student learning progress. If students learn more each year, they'll achieve more at the end. That can be measured at a high level by things like NAPLAN, but it can, it's much more relevant to measure that in a classroom as well. And when it's done in a classroom, that means that, uh, that, means that it takes a broader account of what we want from education more naturally. So we want some change. We want that to be done on the basis of what helps students learn some more. We could imagine this in three broad ways. One is that someone figures out the recipe and says, teachers, go do it. Not going to happen, not going to work. A second would be to say, teachers, you go and figure it out yourselves, all 65,000 of them in New South Wales public schools. Now, we'll get some fantastic things happening there, but it'll also be monumentally inefficient and we'll reinvent the wheel a thousand times. A third way of doing it is to say that we could embed a layer of expertise at different places within the education system, some of whom closer to classroom practice, some of whom a bit closer to the evidence base, and say that people who have already demonstrated that they are experts in their area, that they can sh help other teachers change their practice, they can guide and navigate. And, and that level of expertise allows a balance between saying there are some things that the research is very clear on and we also need to apply that in each local context. Because those decisions, if you're going to change your practice, it should be about saying, what's the challenge I have in front of me? What's the best of what myself and my colleagues are doing? But also, what's the best that I might potentially be able to access by looking beyond that? Um, and having someone who is an expert in a particular area that can help you with that decision, I would argue, is going to make those decisions individually much better, but it's also going to allow a cumulative knowledge base to build up so that we don't keep reinventing things and can actually spread what's working much more effectively. Mm. Murat, I'm, I'm interested in your views here too. Why is it that you see teaching, import, teaching expertise as important? I think Peter makes a lot of sense. I don't agree with every Grattan Institute report, but <laughs> the 2016 November one, the recent article with a new minister coming in, I think hit the mark and we've got to sit up and have a look, uh, you know, uh, particularly for public education in New South Wales. Why? You know, there's a line in your report there that, you know, sticks with me uh, as someone who, you know, entered the classroom, started at the classroom, who still describes themselves as a teacher at the barbecues that I go to, um, you know, and I'm still shaped by my what my first 
formative years of teaching were next door to an outstanding social science teacher who I would have benefited from if they were given time and space, if they had knocked down the wall between room six and seven, if we had been able to combine the classes, if I could have watched him in action, and if I could have picked his brains more than the five minutes in the faculty while we were running between you know, five-period days. So the line that sticks out with me in the report is that the first day of teaching you know, can look like your last day of teaching, that you're running hard, you know, you've got a fulsome load, you've got parental expectation, reporting requirements, uh, you know, the multiplicity of what we ask our teachers to do. So, um, you know, th- th- those sort of lines make the system sit up and take note. I think we've known for a long time that the evidence says teachers are the critical difference makers, But are we giving our people enough space and time? Are we recognising expertise? We know that in sites where there's been the instructional leadership model, whether it's been through AA for us, I know you're going to go there, or schools have been doing it, or many clever leaders, many clever school principals that I come across, across the sectors and in public education, they've been buying time for their key people, you know, without the system investing, because they know they've got great teachers who know how to build other teachers in a non-threatening, in a non-line management structure. So they've been doing it for a long time. And where I'm heartened by for public education in New South Wales, uh, you know, under Mark Scott, under um, Mark Grant, Melinda Haskett, Lila Malachik in this room, Uh, in leadership and high performance, we have taken embryonic steps to sit up and have the debate that with additional dollars, is this the space we need to invest in? What have good jurisdictions done in this space? You know, because the reach into 65,000 classrooms as a lever is hard to lift a system, but if the reach is that we can build uh, roles that help in that process, and we've made many mistakes in previous configurations, uh, that 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 might be the way to look and learn and invest in and debate and discuss. You know, if you bring, boil it down, experts build great experts in all other professions. You know, we're not doing it well enough here, not just here, but in teaching per se, that we're not recognising, calling out our experts, giving them space and time Uh, I'm saying individual schools are doing that, but the system needs to look into it. Under Mark Scott, where we've created an executive priority to enhance teaching quality across 65,000 classrooms, and we've started these big debates and discussions. Can I I just jump in there? Because I did a straw poll at a recent event for the Australian Council of Deans of Education, so the heads of faculty and a whole bunch of people who work in education, and asked a series of questions. Hands up, how many people uh, believe that teaching is a a tough job? Everyone's hand goes up. How many people uh, say it requires expertise? How many people say that that expertise takes time to build? How many people say that expertise that takes time to build should be supported by someone who is more expert? How many people uh, believe that we're already putting that in place? Every single hand in the room went down on that last question. Um, Of course, totally agree. There are many individual places where it's happening and kudos to all those people who are doing it and the programs. But is it 
yet part of the way we work as a, as a nation of, uh, of educators in schools. Not yet. Yeah, just on that, I'm just saying they've done it in spite of the system, in spite of what support might have been there. I just think we need to lean in as a system and also look at those examples and pick up how they've done them. And, you know, like our previous failed attempts, if we just roll out at a system level and say this is what we think the expert teacher model might look like, we, we've got a track record of missing the mark. I'd like to lean in on those sites who've done it well and what lessons can we pick up as well as the evidence base that's out there to really shape it for, you know, what it could look like for public education. You know, Melinda and the team gave me some great material to read. We've got about 100 lead or highly accomplished teachers in our system. You know, 26 of those, if I've got it right, they, they're right at the back so they can't yell at me. Uh, you know, there's only 26 of those in the classroom. We've set it up as keeping people in the classroom They've gone on to leadership roles. They'll make outstanding middle managers, outstanding principals, because they've got the instructional know-how. There's no doubt about it. But that's not why we created that. We wanted to have them in the classroom. We wanted to have them building capacity. And they've done that, I believe, because that's the only way you can progress on what salary and time, etc., looks like. So we're sitting up and taking note. I'm heartened by the organisational discussions we're having and an area that we'll brief our new minister on to as well. Uh, and I'm hopeful that we could deliver a model that's strong for public education in New South Wales. Mm. Well, we might come back to a bit of that in a moment. Um, it, as with all learning, it's great to hear about it, but even better is to learn by doing. Um, so we're going to show you a short video now from Michelle, uh, which illustrates the importance of expertise using learning to count. Spoiler alert, it's harder than it looks. Many children enter kindergarten being able to recite the counting sequence, sometimes in fact beyond 100. Counting forms part of early mathematics curriculum for very good reasons. When you're able to count, you're able to describe how much, compare quantities, you can move into the world of addition and subtraction, and counting opens up one of a handful of entries into the world of mathematics for children. To the world outside of a classroom, counting can seem like a reasonably simple act. You might say to me, Michelle, can you please count to five? And I may, I may respond by saying one, two, three, four, five. You might observe this behaviour and say, Michelle can count to five, which I can, sort of. Being able to produce the forward number word sequence is an important piece of the counting jigsaw. To say the number word sequence requires an awareness of one of a couple of counting principles, and this one's called the stable order principle. The stable order principle means that I know that counting involves an unchanging sequence of number words, and I know that that sequence is consistent. So if I'm counting to five, I would always say one, two, three, four, five. And I would never say one, four, two, three, five, for example. But being able to say the number word sequence uh, in order is important, but it's not enough on its own. It's really just the tip of the iceberg. Counting is much more than just being able to recite number word sequences, and it's why teacher subject expertise is so crucial. So what else is involved then? Well, fundamentally, counting is about determining how many. And as educators, we know that students need to be able to match their recall of number sentences with quantities. So I can count to five. I now need to be able to match that to objects. One, two, three, four, five. 
The capacity to do this is called one-to-one -one number correspondence. It means that children know that each object must be given one count and one count only. The same applies actually if I'm counting in groups of objects, uh, and in which case I'm counting by units, and each unit is only counted once. This is actually not an easy thing to do for burgeoning mathematicians. They have to be able to coordinate the number word sequences with items as they also keep track of what has been counted and what hasn't been counted yet. It carries significant cognitive load and part of the work is of teaching is supporting students to learn how to keep track of the count and work like mathematicians in logical ways using what we already know. So when we're supporting students to count and keep track of the count, it might be simple as simple as moving the location of the counter so that I can see this one has been counted, but these ones haven't been counted yet. So one, two, three, four, five. This also starts to link to ideas around cardinality. And cardinality is the idea that the number, that the last number word I say describes the size of the collection. So one, two, three, four, five. Five isn't the name of this counter, like I might call it Bob or Ali or Caitlin, for example. Rather, it describes to me how many that I have in total. In addition, there's also things I need to know about conservation. Uh, and conservation is the idea that the count for a group of objects stays the same, no matter whether I spread them all out or if I bring them all in together. Like most things in mathematics, these ideas are really deeply related and often there's varying underlying principles that are playing out at the same time. Once I've determined that there's five uh, objects in my collection, it doesn't matter how I rearrange them. Like it could look like this or it could look like this or I could make it look like this or I could make it look like this. Once I know that there's five, the way that I rearrange it doesn't matter because the attribute in question is the qu of quantity and that hasn't changed. The fiveness of my collection is so far remaining constant. I could also swap out one bigger counter for a smaller one and I know that I still have five because I'm, I'm focusing on the attribute of quantity. I could also swap out a counter, in fact, for a block. I still have five in my collection in total because what I'm attending to is the quantity or the size of my collection. There's also this thing called the abstraction principle, and the abstraction principle states that it doesn't matter what I count, the process is still the same. So I can count physical things like counters, visible things, big things, small things, invisible things even, the process remains the same. There's also another principle which is called the order of relevance principle, which is the idea that the counting of objects can begin and end with any object and the total will be the same. So I can count this as one, two, three, four, five, and I have five in my collection, but I could also count it by doing one, two, three, four, five, and I still have five. I could also count by saying one, two, three, four, five, and moving them around. I still know that I have five. The order of relevance principle is a really important thing to make explicit with children. It forms the basis of the commutative property of addition and multiplication, which allows me to move numbers around, um, adding and multiplying them in ways that allow me to make use of knowledge that I have at my disposal to solve problems. This actually then later extends into the algebraic world, for example, and empowers students uh, 
to think about and use algebraic expressions in ways that make sense to them, showcasing their numeracy as they do so. So what we know is that from an educator's perspective, counting to five is so much more than just being able to say one, two, three, four, five. Without specialist knowledge, I might be able, I might be happy to hear a child in kindergarten count to five or to 30 or to 187, but I would be missing the entirety of the iceberg that lay, lies beneath the surface. This would in fact impede, I think, my capacity to make discerning choices about where to invest my time. I think it would also impede my capacity to determine underlying pathology for children that are experiencing mathematical difficulties. And I think it certainly would impact how um, impactful I can be for students in a classroom compared to what I when I really understand what is actually involved in helping students count to five. The iceberg is a really big one, though, because I also need to know that whilst counting is indeed a powerful entry point into building number sense and operational sense for children, for example, an over-reliance on counting in their future is symptomatic of children who are mathematically vulnerable. And, and students who develop an over-dependence of counting at the cost of number sense actually stunts their growth as mathematicians and hinders their numeracy development. So as a teacher, I need to know that counting one, two, three, four, five is really just the beginning of the story. I absolutely need specialist subject knowledge and I need it surrounded in deep understanding of pedagogical practices, knowledge of the horizon and knowledge of my students and how they learn. This is brilliantly intriguing and delicate work, actually, this business of teaching, and it's partly why we love it. Thank you very much, Michelle. Thank you for sharing that uh, with us. Um, I'm going to move on now to the role of expert teachers in improving practice. Um, Michelle, what are the lessons that you've taken from the front line on this? About the role of expert, te About the role of expert teachers in improving practice. Oh, I think I've learnt a lot of what not to do. Um, and I am learning more about how to enhance and refine the work that, that we're doing. Is that better? Um, what I have learnt is that I think we need people in schools that can help teachers guide and have conversations about why is this kid stuck with counting? And there's someone there or there's access to somebody who can help you understand the pathology that underlies that. <coughs> but I also think we need to recognise that every teacher has expertise in something, particularly expertise in the children that they work with. And so I might know all of this about how to count, but when I go and work with schools and teachers and classrooms, I need to rely on their expertise as well and acknowledge uh, what they know about the children that they work with because the theory is always really powerful to know, but you also have to know how it's enacted in reality and how different children are connecting to that. Because even though I know this, I might see something play out with a child, but my I've missed the point because I also don't understand this other particular issue that's taking place at home. Um, I, I also think that uh, there's, there's more than just being able to know stuff about how to count. Uh, so, so there's, you know, being able to do the mathematics, for example, N knowing and understanding what is it that gets kids to being able to count to five well, 
But then there's also knowing around a range of pedagogies that work for kids. How do I assess? How do I keep track of this data? How do I comply with particular policies that are at play? How do I navigate around the emotional space of working with really vulnerable young people or educators that I work with? Because when I challenge someone on their thinking and their practice, I am meeting them at a point where they are now vulnerable to me. And so the psychology around that space is also where expertise is needed to navigate that well and with dignity for people. Yep. Yeah. Uh, can we clone Michelle? <laughs> well, that's maybe this is the answer to the next question. I was going to ask you, right, you know, you've talked about there being an executive priority and, and, you know, the fact that there are already people doing things in spite of the system, but obviously there is this priority to make to make a change here. So what is it that the New South Wales Edu- Education Department is aiming to do to best utilise this teaching expertise, expert teachers like Michelle? Um, you know, my colleagues in the room who I called out earlier, uh, they've done some great work across the last 18 months. One, um, we couldn't put our hand on heart and know who the 100 halts were. So, you know, they got accredited at the higher levels. They went into their context, which is fantastic. Uh, we couldn't even remember who they were. So uh, my colleagues... Yeah, Mary, can you just uh, talk through what the HALTS program oh, yeah. is? Most will know, yeah. not everyone. So there are highly accomplished and lead teachers that were already accredited, and I think our colleagues did a great job getting them all together. They felt, just getting them together in a um, professional learning structure, they felt enormously valued by the system, but we picked their brains about you know, how we might leverage uh, their expertise, what, how we might get better value out of uh, 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 them, how we might continue to grow them. We actually got 10 of them through Melinda to come and speak to the entire executive. They came and spoke to the executive of the organisation about, you know, because um, we're 65,000 teachers, if you're secretary of the organisation, you might think, well, you know, what do you mean 100? Can't you just get 5,000 this year, you know? Uh can't we just get one in every school with the current um, processes, etc.? So we got 10 in to talk to the executive. That was enlightening. Again, my colleagues, their work, they went and piloted a mastery of teaching pilot. They went into four rural networks where it can be hard to get um, teachers to. And they developed a program with using existing holds to go into context and identify talent call out talent and say, you know, you're up to the mark of meeting these accreditation requirements. How about we support you in that process? Because we can be quite humble, I find, in education, you know, that we don't stick our head up for what higher accolades or what higher positions can look like. And all of us are products, the educators in the room, are being tapped on the shoulder and someone saying, you know, you'd go well in this role, us having self-doubt going into the role and rising. So that Mastery of Teaching pilot identified great talent on the ground and we're now supporting that talent as a system. And my colleagues, because they are uh, are deeply passionate in this area, are looking at expanding that to 22 networks. You know, how can we keep at a system level with those existing structures? But I think the next big challenge for us that they've set as the system leaders for public education is, but how can we use those accreditation levels to get meaningful roles? Are you going to tackle remuneration? Are you going to tackle time? Uh, are you going to, uh, um, you know, bite off those things? And they're the discussions that they've well positioned us for. 
Because it is unacceptable, if you ask me, that in a system of 65,000 teachers in public ed, I see, you know, I've got a privilege access all areas past, so I get to go to lots of schools. I see phenomenal teachers, phenomenal practitioners who I know can be highly accomplished and lead and, you know, we need to grow that capacity and look for system roles because what Peter, his research, uh, what our team have been looking into tells us that those systems that have invested heavily in here have created those roles, have recognised that expertise and we'd like to think we could, um, you know, position the organisation and government to look at this as an area to invest in very seriously because we've only got two big levers to lift the entire system. That's the 65,000 teachers. We're about to be a million students by 2031. Mm -hmm. I actually think we'll get there a lot quicker than that because I see a growing confidence in public education and a growing demand. If I have my way, we'll break it in world record time. So we'll need more teachers. And the 2,207 principles that we've got are a big lever for us. We've got a leadership strategy where we've invested heavily. We're now sitting up to look at this teaching workforce and how can we look at roles and systems that are going to support them better. Mm. You've alluded to it to, to a couple of times now, Murat. Um, so I'm going to throw to you, Peter. Grattan has long held a view on the importance of expert teachers and improving practice. Can you talk us through Grattan's proposal on how this would work? Absolutely. Um, just before getting into that, I, I want to just reinforce a distinction that expertise, and uh, Michelle, you talked about it, but expertise and, high, and being a highly effective teacher involves both general skills, general pedagogy, the ability to make relationships with students, having high expectations, the ability to uh, not just control a class but actually have it so engaged in learning that you don't need to try and control it. And also these really specialised ones because what you do is not the same as what's needed for a Year 12 English Literature class, clearly. you know. And, if, and I always look at uh, your work and I say, well, if there's that much to learning to count to five, then I reckon there's kind of a lot in these other places as well. Um, so recognising the... And, and in Australia, we have a public language that talks about great teachers... I would like that to be highly effective teaching because it's often that individual working in an environment, but it's also highly effective teaching in an area. It's being able to build on that. So what we have uh, proposed um, was that as a concept, we would want every single teacher to and every single uh, person in that teaching area to have access to someone who is more expert than they are. Now, if you're a relatively new teacher, that might be fairly general, but as you uh, become more experienced, you might actually look to one person, you might look to a Michelle for someone who's more expert in the theory of counting and some of its pathologies. You might look to someone, you might look to a Murad or your social sciences colleague for um, potentially about um, positive behaviour support. Um, so the, the, the expertise is diffuse among a stable group of people. And why I want it to be a stable group of people is because then 
that group of people can not only build the deep expertise in each area, but can also learn about how to apply it, what it takes to actually help other teachers see this is a different way of doing things and I could work. What we propose then is a model that has two main layers of expertise that are built in. The first layer um, is a, we, we are still trying to find the right name, but for tonight I'll call them expert teachers. Um, and they would be working within schools. The second layer would be what I'll call master teachers. That's a, a name from Singapore. Um, and they would be working across schools. And uh, you may or may not like this one, but I would argue very strongly they should be working across sectors. We want to spread expertise across all sectors. It's, um, and, and if you can learn from someone who's good, it doesn't matter to me what sector you're in. It can help you become a better teacher. The expert teachers within schools um, would remain practitioners. Their day job might be... And, and here there's a really important point that in order to make it work, you need to be able to identify the right people, that they have genuine expertise and the highly accomplished lead teacher process does that very well. Tick. It also checks that they can help other people learn, right? Being able to help another adult change their practice is a subtle and uh, important skill. Um, identify them. They need to have the right day job. Many of the existing highly accomplished teachers might be regular classroom teachers with a heavy load. Others of them might be a deputy principal doing a bunch of admin. That's not using their skill to best effect. Their team leadership needs to know how to use them, particularly if you've got a head of mathematics and you had access to someone like Michelle. Well, what's the nature of those roles? How do we use them constructively? How do we make sure we don't set up a, a little bun fight there? And it needs to be permanently in the system. So we've proposed as a starting point that an expert teacher might be half-time um, with their own classroom load. And that means that they are still a practitioner. They're not being elevated as someone who is different. You know, They have to walk the talk every single day. Um, and other teachers can come and look at them in that. They also might go and work with other teachers one-on-one. -on -one. They would have three elements to what they're doing. One would be to help other individuals build their capability, maybe by coaching, going into a class, demonstrating something. They would help the group of teachers learn how to get better together, including through a common language and a common understanding of what the evidence might mean in their context. And they would set standards. And this is partly where my model differs a bit from some of the focuses on collaboration. Collaboration is wonderful when done well. When done poorly, it can lead you into a marshland going around in ever smaller circles. Having someone with deep expertise is a way of ensuring that you wander into the marshland less regularly. They also need to be able to manage that and not be too controlling. So that would be the, uh, the um, expert teachers within schools. I would say uh, we'd want that to be about 5 to 10% of the workforce. Those numbers come from thinking through the logic. A typical size primary school might have three, 400 kids, might have, uh, say, 30 teachers. That means you might have three Expert teachers, that means you could have one in English, one in maths, and one in choose-your-own-thing. Some schools might want science, some might want others. That means for some of those core areas where every primary school teacher needs to be getting good at this, as well as knowing their kids, they have an expert on tap. 
For a secondary school, you might have a more. I spoke to a New Zealand principal recently of an independent school, and we were talking more general, and he said, yeah, the way I did this is I got eight people across each of my faculties, half-time in the class, half-time working with other teachers, and they, you know, they built it up there. It's like, oh, good, another one who's, who's done this. So that's 5 to 10% of the workforce. Now, on its own, that would have a really big impact. But who did they learn from, right? They're good, but they're not necessarily good at everything. And when you first start trying to influence adult learners, then you've still got a lot to learn yourself. So who do they learn from in, in our model would be this much smaller group of master teachers, maybe about a 1,000 or so across Australia. They would have to be certified at the highest level, which by under HL standards is called lead teacher. They should have shown that they uh, can do the job within a school. And then at that point, yes, they probably don't have a classroom of their own, but the group of people that they are most directly supporting are the expert teachers within every school who can then trickle it down. Unless you think this is too much of a trickle-down model, that way of practice also offers the opportunity for things to trickle up, that when things are working well somewhere, someone gets to recognise them has a voice to say, yep, this is pretty good, actually, why don't you try this in your school? And if that starts working, then information can flow back between. So this group, in the end, becomes a cadre of people with a recognised standing, permanent roles, paid a chunk more because they're really valuable, but it doesn't blow out the budget because there are only so many of the roles. It's not as though you can have an unlimited number of highly accomplished teachers, in theory. Not everyone will make it, but there is no theoretical limit to the number of teachers who could demonstrate expertise. There is a theoretical limit to the number of roles that you have, and I think that's one of the challenges that uh, some previous models had, including the advanced skills teacher approach that was done some years ago. Um, I think I've covered all the yep. elements. Sounds great. Now, look, I won't ask the Deputy Secretary to agree publicly to all of that tonight. <laughs> but, working, working on him. <laughs> but um, what I would like to know is um, how, how you see us going about supporting expert teachers themselves better. Um, you know, you have sort of touched on it already tonight, but just if you could crystallise for us where you see we could make improvements to... Better, better support or maybe build on the existing support is perhaps a better phrasing. I'm going to go home to a four-year-old tonight. I'm not going to look at one to five the same way. I've just, <laughs> you know, learnt and developed myself and, you know, and we're in education every day and it just goes to the point that's being made tonight that, you know, we can learn from experts, uh, you know, that we're continuous learners that the craft is not just for the first three years and how can we take you across the line and build your confidence. You know, look at the demographics of our uh, workforce. How can we keep them energised, keep contributing, keep growing? And when you listen to Peter, there's a lot that makes a lot of good sense. So I wonder why we haven't pulled it off in previous iterations and structures when we know the research says what we argued about tonight about the impact of the teacher and, um, you know, and we've looked with our team at the failed models. Um, so where to from here? The team have been on an 18-month journey to grow the organisation's understanding collectively. It's a big organisation when you look at corporate services, external affairs, school operations, ed services. They've done a tremendous job 
growing the organisation's understanding by doing one, identifying who the hundred are that we've got, <laughs> bringing them together, picking their brains, tabling the research around teacher quality and showing to the executive what good systems have done in this space, which, again, Peter unpacked. I think they've laid the groundwork for us now to look at how we might go about creating some of these pathways. Um, you know, the big challenge, I think, for previous folk in this space, uh, you know, chunk of time costs money, better remuneration costs money, the room agrees that the investment in teachers is important. We always wrestle with, and this is why Singapore's done it well, I think, Peter, you know, the teacher track, quite distinct from the leadership track, and we, we get ground in the differentials between the teacher track and the leader track here. You know, our people rightfully remind us there's some instructional leaders that are paid more than a principal of some context, you know, is that right, that wrestle? So, you know, we've got to also debate and discuss that differential because uh, we also want continuously 2,207 outstanding leaders, you know, 3,000 outstanding leaders across the sectors. So, you know, I want it all. I want great teachers building great teachers, but I also need great leaders coming through. So, that's going to be a bit of an unpacking and wrestle that we've also got to get right um, in terms of the pay and the differentials alongside the role. Look, I'm pretty confident organisationally that we can take on this debate and discussion because, you know, a year ago we created a role that didn't exist in the organisation. So we went internal to the organisation and said, uh, we've got this talent called uh, Eddie Wu uh, at Cherrybrook Technology High, we want him to have a pretty unique role. We want him to have one class at Cherrybrook because Eddie wanted that and he knows the currency is important, the credibility of delivery is important. And for the rest of the time, we want Eddie to deliver and grow our capacity. And he's been going across the sectors, across the country, uh, and we've got him out to rule and remote and grow that role. When we reached out internally, our folks said that that role doesn't exist. And we said, yes, that's why we're here. You know, make it happen. <laughs> uh, we, you know, we broke all ceilings and barriers together. We remunerated at a, you know, in public education, those in the room, you know, at a CEO rate, which is higher than a principal rate, you know, and the system has seen the value of that. And I've just been saying to the system, Eddie's just one. There's a there's a thousand eddies out there. We've got to find them. The team have been identifying them and we've got to create the roles and Eddie wants to be part of a group and cohort as well, which is where Peter was going to. And then how do we keep feeding those eddies? So these are all the big wickets we're wrestling with and with, um, you know, um, with additionality of funding, where might we invest that? You know, disability, uh, getting it right for equity, our students most in need, is it leadership? Is it teacher quality? What we've been debating and discussing, and that's what systems have got to grapple with. Mm. Can I pick up on yeah. uh, on two bits of this? One, a, a amount of money. Yeah, this is not cheap. This would a uh, um, uh, about three to five percent to the total salaries, but that money is coming through. 
that uh, I wrote a couple of weeks ago in the conversation, a piece that said that um, public schools in particular are on tra a trajectory to get to 91% of their uh, target funding. And if that were to be lifted to 100%, that's worth about $1,500 per student in a medium-sized primary school. Half of that money, because they will have a bunch of needs, half of that money could fund two of these expert teacher roles. So the money, more money is coming down the track and there is a real choice where to use it. The other one, though, Murat, and I'm shocked that you didn't immediately jump there, um, is that it's hard enough, whilst it might be hard enough to create one role for an Eddie Wu, if we're going to do this for five, 6,000 expert teachers and a few hundred master teachers, the union is going to get involved. Um, these need to be formal roles, in my view, because that's what creates stability. And uh, historically, my understanding is that the union has held very precious the idea that we're all in it together. But the union is also looking to say, how do we raise the status of teaching? How do we recognise expertise? And so uh, there is a discussion that will need to be had um, to say, well, what does this look like? Um, I was very deliberate. I'll take this one off your plate. I was very deliberate that I, I'll, I will be talking to Maureen Mulhern, who's the head of the New South Wales Teachers Federation, um, but he's not been invited to be up on stage tonight because it would be too early. I don't want you and him in a public setting to have to discuss things that I'm going to stick in front of you. That discussion needs to have time to unfold properly. But there is a core stakeholder group there and also, that is a representative te of teachers themselves. And we, we may well get to this. Michelle and I were talking about it uh, just before. This sort of idea has not a hope in hell if it's imposed on the profession. The profession teachers need to say, this would be a better way of working. This would be a better way of working individually. This would be a better way of working collectively. This would enable us to do our job better, raise status. Some of us would get paid much better, but they, they would have really earned it and be adding back. Um, and so I, I am trying to sort of create a vision, but I'm extremely aware that this is not something that can be a sort of a, a externally designed and dropped in. It does need to be picked up and run with. Well, I would say, though, um, we have very productive and strong and robust working relationships with Maury and Henry and Joan as the senior team in the New South Wales Teachers Federation. And whenever we uh, debate and discuss, you can smell a strong, genuine uh, want for uh, investment and better support and uh, greater development of, uh, you know, uh, teachers. And I think tonight's debate and discussion goes to that. You know, how could we get that better? Um, another part of the attraction of um, the coverage, I think, is, again, it goes back to what I said about, you know, we're pretty humble in the profession. We don't stick our head up. Uh, I think having, you know, a number in a context is a good way to look at it because in some contexts, you know, if I'm uh, the Michelle Dragoni on the site, you know, um, others might look at it and say, well, oh, I'm up to that mark too, you know, why not me? But if we're a team working together in a school of, you know, 300, 1,000, wherever, I know that that helps support all of us together and I know that that has great attraction across, you know, 100 staff in that context. So... Um, 
you know, while we've said we'd love a highly accomplished teacher in every setting or a lead teacher because we know their calibre and quality and we know the impact they can have, mm. I think uh, another part of the attraction in what you put forward is how do you build a cohort in a context because Michelle will bring the mass expertise. I was pretty reasonable at um, getting good order and structure and, uh, you know, uh, um, getting uh, kids on board. So I might bring that expertise, Michelle. Uh, pretty important with, um, uh, you know, uh, early career teachers and those that might struggle with um, uh, management. And, and you might bring, you know, um, innovative unpacking of, you know, scope and sequences and how I tick off the syllabus requirements. So when we work as a team of three, that's a pretty lethal combination uh, as opposed to you're the font of all of it on all fronts. Uh, so I think that's another attractive point to look at. And I think we've got a good basis with a highly accomplished lead. How can we now look at what roles might look like? I reckon we could have very productive, fruitful discussions with our uh, teachers' federation around that. I'm, I'm conscious of needing to move on. Um, time is getting away. But, Michelle, I just wanted to, to get your thoughts here. In everything that Murat's just kind of talked about, and, and Peter as well, on the ground, if there was one or two key things that you could pick out that really mattered, that that were really going to ensure the appropriate support is in place for these expert teachers, what would it be? Um, I'll build on from your point, Mira. I, I, in my head of it, conceive of it like the Avengers. Do you know, like where I like to think of myself as the Hulk, just so you know. <laughs> I like the irony of becoming gigantic, but... Um, I, you know, it's this idea of finding people with different capabilities that together you're able to tackle really big problems. Um, and that's the way that, like, just to add on to the idea of the way that we work. I'd also like to pick up a, a point on semantics, actually. I really liked the way that you mentioned the idea of high-impact teaching. And I think it's Nicole Mockler at Sydney University talks about so often now when we know about quality teaching, it changes to quality teacher, which is a much more judgmental statement. When we talk about high-impact teaching, it takes away the human because a lot of the times when you're working with teachers, they're doing the very best that they can. They just haven't had access to professional learning that has uh, supported them in in becoming a highly impactful teacher yet. So talking about the teaching is great, but then we say expert teacher and something else I can't remember what you master teacher which I think comes to your point of humility is people don't want to be called in the field I don't think a master teacher or an expert teacher because what I know is what I know today is so much more than what I know six months to new six months ago and I think oh the advice you gave six months ago what were you thinking do you know and it's this constant evolution of what we know and how things work and the titles, whatever they are that you offer, have to allow for that flexibility and freedom inside of them. And I think that's a way of addressing the notion of humility in the field. You've got me again. We'll have a team of Avengers, <laughs> Avengers out there everywhere. Avengers, you I think you're right, though. You know, We've got to be careful with um, even if we come up with the right roles and we've negotiated them and Pete, did you wanna... got everyone behind it, the nomenclature is really important for the system as well, isn't it? Mm. I think uh, that's uh, absolutely right, but even more than that, we were talking about it uh, just before, if the lived experience of the teachers is this makes my job better, then that matters far more to me than titles or any of the other things. So, you know, what you, it does... You've got this job, you're supporting 570 schools, what's the feedback do you get? Does it help make 
teachers' jobs better. Yeah. So I, the biggest thing for me is engagement. You know, we talk a lot about the role of student engagement. I, many years ago, was fortunate enough to be part of a research project with Wayne Sawyer and Jeff Munns at the Western Sydney University where they developed a, a framework of well, what actually is engagement when we talk about this. And they broke it down into three parts about having cognitive challenge. You know, this idea, we talk to kids about this idea of us having a sweaty brain um, and that that so this is the right sort of level of challenge or productive struggle we talk about in research, that there's an element of the kids are seeing relevancy in what they're learning about and why this learning matters and that they're enjoying it. Uh, and interestingly, this links into psychology work, actually, which defines happiness not as pleasure but as the joy someone feels as they strive towards accomplishing a goal. Do you know, And so sometimes we talk about happy classrooms and happy students and happy teachers but we, we take away their capacity for joy, actually, because we remove any sort of cognitive load from their work or we remove too much because we're too helpful. Mm. And when I worked on this project with kids, what I realised is that in actual fact, the goal to engage, the key, I think, to engaging students is to engage teachers and that if you offer teachers environments and learning experiences where they are engaged where they are, you know, have a sweaty brain, they're thinking hard, where the learning is relevant to them here and now, not for some promise in the future of 10 years' time, should you ever become this, this is useful, but right here, right now for this problem. And that there's something joyful in it. Like I was just telling Peter before, one of the things I'm really proud of at the moment is we, inside of the 570 schools, you know, because this is a sensible ratio, Murat, uh, <laughs> one person to 570 schools, inside of that we did a special project for 183, you know, because this is also sensible. Fine, yeah. It seems <laughs> much, much more sensible. <laughs> but uh, we just got the, uh, we went, when we, after the first year, we had such incredible feedback from the field. It was all anecdotal. We commissioned Jeanette Bobbis from Sydney University to review the impact of the work for me, um, largely for two reasons. One, so that we could have independent data. But secondly, because we talk, I talk so often with our teachers about how critical it is to get feedback, even when it's uncomfortable, that the only way for me to model that was to get the best in the field to scrutinise what I was doing and give feedback on it at scale, uh, to, to live that experience. And the report has just uh, come out in draft form and overwhelmingly from the, the biggest shift has actually been the confidence and joy of the participants in mathematics. Now, that doesn't the immediately... For the teachers. Yeah. Um, and that I'm incredibly proud of. It doesn't yet mean that there's an incredible shift in practice so that it's as impactful as it can be. But what it does mean is that there's a joy in their work. And what that means is that when I come and meet them in their space of vulnerability, that's now bigger and I can hit harder and I can you know, be a bit more controversial with them and I can push harder because we now have this relationship mm. and they see the joy and the benefit for them as educators as well as for the children that they serve. Fantastic. I'm, I'm very conscious of, of time marching on. Um, I'm, I'm just going to throw one more question to the panel and then I'm going to open it up to you, the audience, um, and I'm going to ask them to respond to it in one minute or less. <laughs> um, I, I'm going to start with you, Peter. Uh, just We've talked a lot about mostly benefits, and, and if you could crystallise for me what you see the benefits of embedding expertise in the career pathway for teachers is, but also are there any inherent risks 
So the part of it would be the stability. It's not that we've never had the idea of putting, making better use of our best teachers in Australia. We've done it a hundred times rather than once and well. There are a range of seemingly intractable problems out there. How to do school improvement, how to improve teaching practice, how to translate evidence into, a, on, into the ground, how to translate policy into classrooms, how to raise the status of teaching, how to attract high achievers to teaching. These are big challenges for tackled independently. I think we're going to struggle with. Every one of those gets easier if you put expertise in as a cadre of people. The major risks are that um, we either choose the wrong people or we choose roles that are too constricting and that gets rejected and that's where learning and getting that feedback and saying, well, what was it about that process that raised joy is so important. Um, there is a, a risk there. Potentially, it does create two different groups but I would like to hope that all teachers could say, actually, that's worth doing. That's something I could aspire to. So other professions have got over it. There's a risk that the finances could blow out. My numbers say there is enough money if we choose to use it that way. And this is why defining the roles differently um, is, uh, is so important. I think there's also a risk that, um, that probably the biggest risk is trying to do it too quickly. If this is going to be done, I think it's a 15-year journey. I just think we've got to get started and got to get started, not with saying, let's try it in a few places, but let's try embedding it and learning from those embedded pieces and then build. Mira? <laughs> I agree with lots of things Peter said. Um, I don't agree with the 15-year journey. Um, I'll tell you why I don't agree. Um, you know, if I say... I'm in a very privileged role, you know, I'm a custodian for a point in time. I actually get up every day and pinch myself that someone saw fit that I could get a access all areas pass and go into anywhere. Uh, so I'm restless around what I could do and achieve for the system. Mm. If I say to my colleagues around the table, uh, it's a 15-year outlook, some of them will think, I won't be here in five, that's someone else's problem. I'm not sure if I'm going to bite it off. So I think we've got to be restless. I don't think Peter's saying wait 15. I think he's saying we need to take stay steps there. and stay the journey. Uh, uh, the um, uh, risk and problem that I see is if we pull the role, if we pull the roles off right. Imagine we had the roles described well, and we had the union on board, and we had the funding right, and we had the government on board, everyone on board, I actually think we've got to also look for time for the teachers that we're actually working and developing with. So if Michelle is the, you know, and Michelle and Peter are the experts in that school and I'm running around on 42 periods a cycle, I mean, I'm valuing the expertise. It's great that they're coming in and pointing time and developing, but where am I actually breathing where am I getting some time? You know, I'm back at home trying to pull off eight different lessons uh, for the next day with three different variations if it doesn't go right. And, you know, and I'm writing stuff and I'm valuing their expertise. They're giving me lots of feedback. They're giving me actually some more homework as well. So where's my breathing space? I think done well, 
you know, that's a cost. Mm. And it shouldn't be a hidden cost, I think. It's got to be discussed and debated in the full cost of, you know, what do all teachers get in terms of breathing space? And in, if that is an investment, in return for that breathing space, what would a system expect mm. to happen? Very quickly, uh, Michelle, anything to add there in terms of risks before we throw open? We will have a microphone um, going around as well. Um, I agree, actually. I am very aware that in my job I'm asking people to work harder. And in the initial parts of that work, they're working harder and longer, and I am, I am manipulating them, often through advertising techniques, actually, to buy into this idea of just give this a crack and this great thing will happen. Um, I also think an accidental risk sometimes is that when you know too much, it's sometimes hard to make decisions. And then you then hit a point of not moving at all or waiting for perfection. And that's sometimes a, a pathway that we see and need to address as we work through. Hmm. Fantastic. Thank you. All right. Time for some uh, audience questions. Now, we did get some pre-submitted questions, so I will start us off tonight uh, with one of those. I Is Jemima... Kappa in the audience. Did you did you want to did you want to tell us your question or shall I read it out? Yep. Um, just wait for the microphone. We're just um, if you want to. Um, we're just recording tonight, and we will release this as a podcast later. So, thank you. Um, I suppose from a teacher perspective, um, there's not a great deal that I can do to influence the system when so many wonderful people are already trying to make a difference to the system. So at the coal face. What is it about the professional learning that we could prioritize for me or for teachers so that the difference, that successful and improvable teaching comes through? I think a lot of us will understand that a lot of the PD that is given to us um, is useful and is determined by the school, um, but often may not target exactly where it is that maybe we all need to improve. We've all got our goals. We've all got systems around that. But what is the next step for teachers um, while the system works itself out? So ensuring that it's not PD for PD's sake, Peter? I, I think, Michelle, you already nailed this one. It's about is this information relevant immediately? That's why we need the experts close to practice. That Murat, that's absolutely why those teachers need to have time. Um, I understand that Aitzel is starting to think about saying, well, what's the right balance of professional learning? I'm glad you used that, where much of it is very close to daily practice. Some of it is whole school, and the tip of the iceberg is the go off to a conference. That's great for inspiration, but if that's the majority of what's done, it's going to be wasted. It's practice that helps you tomorrow, and then reinforcing that, that I, I think is what works best already and should be more systematic. You're right. I'm actually heartened. I see lots of fantastic um, professional learning platforms in our schools. And I think I look back at my principalship and think I could have had it better, could have done it much better. So I see schools where leadership teams are, you know, there might be one big wicket that all staff are being developed on that's contextual and relevant for them. And then they're offering a very differential platform to meet what the needs are. They're looking for expertise in that school. Um, and we've all been in staff meetings. Many of us have been in classrooms. Many of us have been in PL formats. Uh, you, you're spot on. I can only agree with you, Michelle. If it can help me in my room today and tomorrow, I'm going to sit up and take note a lot more because it's meeting my needs, and that's going to differ 
from the next person. So I see schools that are investing in a platform, not complicating it, that's important for everyone in that context to deliver on the school plan or the school vision or the priority, that's great. Then I see them wrestling with how to provide that differential. In those same contexts, I see them get rid of the formal structures where, you know, there'd be all this replay of administrivia. They've wiped that out. And because time's so precious where there's those staff meetings, staff development days, where they're buying through goodwill, they're actually using it entirely for PL, and they're strategically sending off, without labelling them, their best, their experts, to what those conferences, what those contexts are, to steal, to wrestle ideas, to find practice, and then bring that back as a team, not as an individual. They send a few off strategically because I sign these approvals. I see them for the international travels or the big conferences, and um, then they invest back in their context. The best of them, the best of them, also see themselves as system players, and they're using that expertise in communities of schools or in similar schools, and they're, they're running these platforms across five schools, for instance. So, again, there's learnings there we can tap into. Uh, I'll move on to another question. If you've, if you've got one, just pop your hand up. Yep, up the back on the right, and then I'll come down the front. Good evening. Um, a lot of the language that you've been using in regards to choosing um, the expert teachers has been quite, quite literally that choosing the teachers so my question is what model are you proposing to bring up teachers into that expert teacher role is the role of the expert teacher to educate work with and support another teacher to become an expert teacher or is it just to um, empower their pedagogy um, how are we um, supporting developing and uh, helping teachers rise up into those into those roles Michelle, do you want to start with that on what you've been doing with the, with the numeracy, the early action for success? Yeah. So in part of it, it is about knowing what to look for, I think. So one of the questions that I have is around, uh, it comes from some research from a guy called John Mason, who talks about the critical importance of teacher noticing. What, what we find through research, this is particularly in mathematics, but what we find in the research is that teachers... You can get an insight into teachers' expertise through what it is that they notice in a five-minute snapshot of a video, for example, or walking through classroom practice. And interestingly, it tends to be tied to confidence too. So, you know, a, a teacher who's been teaching for 10 years might notice something like the kids are sitting on their bottoms and their legs are crossed and they're putting their hands up and they're asking questions, you know, that the teacher's asking all these questions of the students. Someone else who's got a level of expertise may actually notice that in that same five-minute time frame, the teacher asked 15 questions and 14 of them were IRE model. Do you know? And that in fact, the teacher spoke for four minutes and 58 seconds of this five-minute window and those critical dialogic practices that are shown through research to benefit the learning outcomes of kids were entirely missing. So part of the work that we're doing is trying to support a, a greater clarity and focusing in on the lenses of seeing and then what I'm doing at the moment, because to add on to your question, I saw a clip of Sir Ken Robinson once 
who spoke about the idea of teachers having this frustration with the system. Because I, I live this too sometimes. I go, what is this system doing? Sorry, Mira. Uh, but so we're the things we need to fix. One to five hundred and seventy-eight. Keep going. Uh, but. But in this video, he talks about teachers need to learn to be virtuosos of their system and play inside of the constraints that you exist in. And so part of playing inside of the constraints is that I sometimes look at different people that I'm working with and I can see what they're seeing. And I know that what they are seeing is would be really helpful if they were in working with Pete in his classroom and so because I can play and be a virtuoso in the system I sometimes invite them in to work with me. The most important thing that I look for though really is that people are kind and generous to other people, that they are willing to work hard and learn because the rest of it like you know learning about how to count to five you can learn that stuff but treating people with dignity at the position of professional vulner vulnerability is not so easy to learn. That's my answer. You're right. Did you want to add to that from a system point of view? I'm, I'm enjoyed listening because you build this into selection criteria if you're in roles like me. Um, yeah, you got to. You got to. You got to. Um, I'd like to think in an instate we'd be merit selecting, we'd be identifying talent. But um, boy, you hit on some. Um, you know, apart from your technical expertise, subject expertise, delivery expertise, you've got to be good with people, don't you? And you've got to be able to. Uh, you know, meet and encourage and because I'd say to our colleague there, the role I would see, whatever we could develop, is about just growing confidence and capacity further with whatever that looks like for that teacher. Can you do it for the hundred in that school, you know? So, because uh, that's just going to lead to more effective teaching in that classroom. It's going to lead to better outcomes for the individuals. And I think, you know, you're right, Michelle, we can think about all the technical parts that we might deliver on the role, but how do you make sure you capture, because uh, what you described are the people that are going to be well-received by the profession, you know, and are going to be well-received in school contexts. We are going to open our doors to you, our classroom walls, for you to come in on. And if we don't smell that as people who need to grow and develop continuously, well, you know, that, that leads to poor outcome. Certainly if the expertise comes in and is not embracing of where the individual is and how to move them, but rather it almost um, is a dictatorial in coverage about, you know, it's just these steps that you do and you get there. Again, that can, that can hinder the role. And in, you know, when we called out risk, in a system of ours, if you pull off these things, those people are going to be all of those ingredients and calibre because mm. often it's the weakest link in what that can look like that can also throw um, some complexity to a, to a model like that. Mm. Pete? Great question. Two-part answer. Um, first part is the best people to choose are the people who are already doing it, so what Michelle said. Um, I'm not just saying that uh, because that's what sounds good. That's what other systems that are doing it successfully do. In Singapore, if you want to move up through these levels, then you have to not only show that you've got the expertise in the pedagogy and the pedagogical content knowledge, but you have to have demonstrated that you can help develop other people that builds a model of bringing the next person along. Second part of the answer, how do we get there from here? 
right? Once it's there, that would be nicely self-sustaining. Um, there, there's going to have to be a little bit of pump priming. Um, there, there's the work that's already going on to identify and encourage people to move to the accreditation pathways, creating some of the roles, putting them in, in the formal structures, but um, then saying this is available to a group of schools and there will be strategic choices because there will not be enough for everyone. So maybe let's do this substantially in more disadvantaged schools where it would have great impact, but also in some advantaged schools because we need to know, learn what it looks like there. Let's start doing it with principals who are keen to take this on, but also look for opportunities to, say, people who might be unsure because if it only is done in the places that are welcoming it. So the, the, the challenging bit for me of that question is the how to get there from here. Um, that is going to be some trial and experimentation along the way. Um, but the signal for me is the one, again, that, Michelle, you talked about, the joy. If you've got an implementation approach that people are saying, you know, this is working, then then you're in a model where they are pulling it to you, not having to continue to push it down people's throats. So I, when I think about implementation, yes, it's got really good evidence. Yes, it's cost-effective, but it, it creates its own momentum. Seed a few places, look, seed a few approaches, look for the ones that create their own momentum and are good and build from that. I'm going to try to fit in two more short questions. Are you you're putting your hand up still or your question is done? Yep, great. So we've got one down the front and then we'll throw to one more question, short questions with short answers. Um, my, <laughs> I just quickly just want to answer as well, Jemima, there's also another lever in the system to get to that professional learning you need, which is teacher-identified professional development, which is a requirement for maintaining accreditation. So just to compliment you, Murad, on that, my question's to Peter. Your argument has been that expertise is domain-specific, largely. There's a level of specificity to expertise. With your master teacher model, uh, one, of the, one of the things that makes a teacher an expert is not only content knowledge, but contextual knowledge, understanding the context of your students, their composition, their cultures, their communities and character of those things. How would you look at defining the orbit of a master teacher, given the specificity of these contextual elements. So a teacher in Albury is going to have a lot more in common with a teacher in Wodonga as opposed to a teacher in Broken Hill, Bondi or Burke. Yep. Um, again, brilliant question. Um, first part, that I emphasise the domain specificity because there's already lots of people saying that you need to be good at the generic pedagogy stuff. Both are needed. Um, in terms of the master teachers, it is very difficult to drop down and say from, you know, one in a, in a system to say what happens in each class. I suspect if you tried that, you would fail. You've got to work through other people. But the model would say that there might be, I, I think it was something like 50, um, 50 to 80 primary-focused maths master teachers, for the want of a better word, across New South Wales. That means that they'd be covering about 50 schools each. Each of those schools would have a, an expert teacher within them. Um, and uh, that means that they do actually get to understand some of the local issues 
and then they they're not that gets interpreted further through the people who are working within that school. One final question. Yep, just in the middle third row there. Just very quickly, um, my I have a passion for equity, equity for teachers, equity for kids. I want to see this scaled not just to public schools, and you've already made a mention of cross-sector. How can we ensure that it will go beyond some schools, some sectors, but to all schools, all sectors, all teaching environments? Murat, I'll start with you. You've already talked about eddy. How do we... How do we Increase the eddies. Um, and, um, you know, one, we know we've got many more and we've got to, um, having broken the ceiling, um, you know, build that. But we're also proud that we've, um, Eddie's pretty unique, isn't he? But we've, you know, he's presented at Catholic schools and independent schools and across the system. You know, we, we actually at the highest of levels across the system have great working structures and relationships, great structures. I visited an independent school today. You know, we're in the we're we're building our first two high rise schools. Uh, I don't know too many depsecs that have gone to an independent school for visiting, but I reached out to a colleague who's led that school for ten years, and sat down with him today because he's got some lessons that I want to uh, avoid pitfalls that and know how across a decade. So, I think we can work stronger and better. I think. It's up to, uh, you should expect of us at the highest of levels across the systems to set that platform. And we are serving children right across the state. Um, uh, I do concur with the coverage that we can learn from each other. I'm respectful of context, but we can learn from each other. We go and mark HSC papers together when we're at the table sitting down. Uh, I don't. I don't know that they say... What school and sector are you from? You can only sit next to that school and sector because we're all in the same profession. So, you know, I concur. You know, a lot of my comments went to public ed today and, you know, that's where I roll the sleeves up every day. But I'm just as passionate that we deliver for all children across the state and I know my colleagues at those senior levels are. So I think we can collaborate and share. And on this topic, I think it is more attractive to government, to a Minister for Education who does serve a cross-sector, that, that you, look, you do look at it cohesively, you do look at it together um, about what you might be able to achieve. Um, uh, you know, we've had other jurisdictions wrestle with it in, in piecemeal way as well. So um, I think, you know, there's, it's a good question. I would say it's not just on this front, though. You know, I was I gave you a building infrastructure example. I'd argue that that should be on the multiplicity of things that we all wrestle with in education. Peter, did you want to add a comment there? Building cross-sector capacity? Yep. First, show that it works in terms of lifting student outcomes. Second, show that it works in terms of uh, making teachers' jobs better. Um, and then third, get the word out and uh, this is going to work if it gets to the point of teachers saying, I want me access to that as well, right? Um, create that demand, and that's not restricted by sector. Well, I think we might uh, call it there unless you had anything you wanted to add to that question, Michelle. I will just add on to Tanya's question, and that is that Carol Dweck talks about that it is a fundamental human right for every person to experience growth. 
And we have this catchphrase of, you know, every student matters, every person in our system should matter, and every person in our system should have the opportunity to experience growth. So I couldn't agree more. I think that's a fantastic note to finish on. Um, I would love to keep talking, but we are out of time. I, I'd like to offer a thanks to the State Library who have housed us tonight. It's through partnerships like the one we have with the State Library that allow us to bring these sort of events to you, and we're very, very grateful for that. Um, thanks to you, our audience, for your attention, for your questions. I'm sorry we couldn't get to more of them. Um, I'm sure these guys will hang around for a little while, and you can pop up and ask a question if you've missed out. We will have this um, come out as a podcast, as I I said, and, and a video, um, you are welcome to follow up with us on Twitter or Facebook with any questions you might have. Um, and finally, I'd just like to thank our incredible panel. Uh, it's no small task to take part in a panel like this. There's a lot of preparation, um, and we really appreciate you taking the time out of your day to share your expertise and insights tonight. So please join me in thanking our panel. Thank you, and good evening. Grattan Institute is uniquely positioned to bring an independent, rigorous and practical lens to big issues in public policy, with the capacity to talk honestly to both sides of politics. We maintain this unique position through the generosity of the public and our affiliate companies. If you would like to find out more about contributing to our continued independence, head to our website to donate, grattan.edu.au. This has been a Grattan Institute podcast. If you want to hear more, subscribe to our podcasts on iTunes.